Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. With great power comes great responsibility. Hey everyone, welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. This is Anthony. This is James, and this is going to be a Spider-Man Spider-Verse episode. We're going to go over the three main movie franchises of Spider-Man, including the uh, animated version of Into the Spider-Verse. So the Amazing Spider-Man, the original Tobey Maguire, Sam Raimi Spider-Mans, and then the new Marvel ones with Tom Holland. Obviously, Andrew Garfield's the star of the Amazing Spider-Man franchise, and I'm, I'm super excited about, to talk about this because we've been massive Spider-Man fans since we were kids. We weren't really comic book people, but we loved the cartoons and and yeah, the animated, animated movies and, yeah. and everything like that. So we've always been fans of Spider-Man, and he was probably my favorite as a kid. And we had like the Spider-Man like action figures and like the Venom action figures. I was a big fan of Venom as a kid. So we had to be opposites. Well, you're a Slytherin, so <laughs> we had to be opposites. Of course, I am Slytherin. So I, yeah, I guess I've always just been a fan of Venom. So. I love all these movies. They're they're all really good. That's the thing. All the Spider-Man movies are good. Of course, you can nitpick, but in general, they're great experiences. Yeah, and if rumors are true, the new Spider-Man will be an absolute crazy movie with, if it's true, all the entire Spider-Verse actors getting together in one film with Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield joining Tom Holland. We'll see if it's actually going to happen. Um, but I don't know. I think it'd be a really cool idea. And... Even some of the actors who played villains were spotted on set. Willem Dafoe was spotted in Atlanta. So maybe it is true. We'll see. I know Andrew Garfield has been spotted there too, but they could just be messing with people. They could just be fake rumors, maybe photos of them in that city at a different point in time. We don't really know. Yeah, who knows? And the when Spider-Man, the first film came out, the one with Tobey Maguire, that pretty much catapulted um, the idea of superheroes being box office juggernauts into the psyche of the world because... Uh, it was the first movie to make over $100 million in its opening weekend alone, even adjusted for inflation. No other movie had ever done that before. So it was a wild success. And uh, when that came out, the only movies we've talked about were superhero movies were like Blade and uh, X-Men. X-Men. And so X-Men came out in 2000. So I think that was obviously the start, but it wasn't nearly as successful as Spider-Man. Um, and this movie just took the world by storm. I know. We talk about the Dark Knight trilogy, and of course, the Dark Knight blew everything up, and that was like the first big superhero movie to make a billion dollars. But, I mean, even Batman Begins, they only made like 250 ish at the box office, and Spider-Man just took everything by storm. And this episode isn't going to be about who's the best Spider-Man, which is the best franchise, who has the best this and that. It's going to be more like we're going to kind of prop them all up and, and show our support of each of these characters, each of these iterations of the character. Because, again, 
whatever you like and whatever is your favorite version of the character, that's you. That's subjective. We're not going to judge you who your favorite Peter Parker is. We're not going to judge who your favorite Spider-Man is, who your favorite, who has your favorite costumes. We're not going to do that. It's up to you. They're, these characters, they're all fantastic. They're all unique interpretations of it. Of course, tons of similarities. But, I mean, again, it's up to you who your favorite is. The best way you can support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron on patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Patrons get special perks like personalized messages, personalized videos, and top-tier patrons get a monthly shout-out on the podcast. And also, I think it's absolutely a generational thing because we were 12 when the first one came out, so we grew up watching Tobey Maguire or Spider-Man. So for us, it's like it's like D Daniel Craig is James Bond. He's like, that's our James Bond, and like Tobey Maguire is our Spider-Man, you know? And so I think the newer generation obviously loves the Tom Holland films, and they're really great. And I'm sure there was a, a the middle generation before them who really liked the Andrew Garfield ones. So I think also it's a generational gap thing. Yeah, and also you, you can Google anything. You'll find articles of why Andrew Garfield's the best or why Tom Holland's the best, why Tobey Maguire's the best. You'll find anything to what you want to be true. So, again, it's up to you. We're going to obviously talk about the differences and maybe critique them in certain areas. But overall— there's no wrong answer with who's the best Spider-Man and who your favorite Spider-Man is. And those aren't exactly the same two things, your best and favorite. It's important to note that. But again, it's up to you. And Spider-Man is one of my favorite superheroes. He, he was my favorite for a while growing up because he's just so cool. And he's super relatable because he's a young guy. He's not like a billionaire or someone crazy from a different planet. Like he's very relatable. He's just from New York. Um, and he... he he resides in New York, so having the, the actual real-life American city involved makes it more relatable and personal, too. Yeah, and Peter Parker, just in general, like you said, highly relatable. He's just this kind of unnoticed person. He's like a like a wallflower, if you want to say, like a person who just goes through the ropes and no one pays attention to him. He's, he's highly intelligent. He doesn't have many friends. He's usually a loner. If, if he has a friend, it's like one good best friend or, or maybe a couple. And uh, there's always like that familiar love interest, whether it be MJ or Michelle, which is basically MJ and Gwen Stacy. And Peter, you know, he has a lot of trauma in his life. He's gone through tough times besides his social uh, relationships. You know, he's, he's lost his parents. Um, he loses Uncle Ben in most of the stories. And he, he's kind of just struggling with once he gets his powers, balancing the life of being Spider-Man with being Peter Parker and being a photographer and being a scientist or engineer and trying to 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 walk that tightrope tightrope of being a superhero while trying to pursue a normal life. And also, he was kind of a reluctant hero. I read that Stan Lee gave him a costume to hide his face so that um, Spider-Man, Peter Parker, could hide his fear um, from his enemies because he's just, you know most of the time he's just a kid, you know, a teenager, and he became a superhero because he realized that if I have these powers and don't use them, then that's a bad thing. So I have to do this. And so he kind of initially is a little, he's reluctantly does it because he feels it's the, the right thing to do. You know what I mean? So he's, he wasn't like born to be a hero. He, he, he chose to be one because of the gifts he was given. In honor of this Spider-Man episode, we will be doing a very special Blu-ray giveaway. We will give away your favorite Spider-Man movie. All you have to do to enter the contest is subscribe to our YouTube channel, find the Spider-Verse full-length episode, and then comment your favorite Spider-Man movie in the comments. It could be the Sam Raimi trilogy, it can be any of the Amazing Spider-Man ones into the Spider-Verse, or the Tom Holland Marvel ones. Whichever movie is your favorite, throw it into the comments. Again, go to YouTube, subscribe to our channel, find the Spider-Verse full-length episode, 
and comment your favorite Spider-Man movie in the comments section. We will we will pick the we will pick the winner at random in one week and personally send a Blu-ray copy of their Spider-Man choice to them directly. Good luck, everyone. This episode of Raiders of Lost podcast is brought to you by our friends at Manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for twenty percent off and free shipping. Twenty percent off and free shipping year round. It's not a holiday thing. Anytime you order from Manscaped.com. Two million men have been using these products now, and we can say from experience that they are the best grooming products we've ever used in our life. They're Lawnmower 3.0. It's insane. It's got a light. It's waterproof. 8,000 RPM. It's like a rocket ship. It's that They've sent us all their deodorizers, colognes, their t-shirts, their briefs. Everything's comfortable. Manscaped's been amazing. Ladies, this is an amazing gift for the men in your life if it's, if it's their birthday or just you want to help you know, let let them know that they should probably take better care of their themselves for your for your sake as well as guys. You gotta get on manscaped.com, Raiders of the Lost at checkout, 20% off free shipping year round. All right, I think the first thing we should probably talk about is the different versions of Peter Parker specifically first and how each movie represents that character. And obviously Toby's Peter Parker is the one we were most familiar with. That's what we grew up with. Yeah, and I've first seen those movies saw, a thousand times. Um Peter's Peter in the Tobey Maguire, Sam Raimi franchise is kind of like the perfect version of Peter Parker. He's definitely like that, that outcast. Uh, he's kind of humiliated on a daily basis at school. He doesn't really have any friends besides Harry. Even the school bus driver laughs at him when he can't catch up to the bus. And so he's clearly the unnoticed person, like the biggest loser in the school, which is a, a mean thing to say, but that's kind of what his character is in this high school and in his life. Yeah, and he's a, he's a very innocent guy. And I think the tragedy of his life and not having his real parents, it sh- it obviously shaped him um, into being a, a, a very uh, isolated person and, and um, very shy and not good with social skills. And uh, Tobey Maguire was, I think, was a perfect choice because, yeah, you can say that obviously Tom Holland looks more believable as a high schooler, obviously. And uh, Tobey Maguire was 27 when this film came out. So obviously he was in his mid-20s, but he also played a college student, you know, so... They needed someone who could pull off both being a high schooler and being an adult. And also, Sony wanted to go with more famous uh, leading men type actors. Like, they wanted DiCaprio and they wanted a couple other, like, super handsome, super famous guys. But Sam Raimi, to his credit, he 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 knew the character so well. And the reason why Sam Raimi got the job was because Sony, who had worked with him on his previous films, they knew that he was... Uh, an intense and avid comic book reader. Like, he has his own private collection of, like, 20,000 comic books. So if someone's going to make this movie, he's obviously a great choice because he has so much history and affection for the character. And he knew better than anyone that Tobey Maguire was perfect for portraying the Peter Parker he had in mind for the movie. Yeah, and Peter Parker in this franchise, it's very close to the comic books. He's in love with MJ, the girl next door, played by Kirsten Dunst. Um, Peter's a very passionate photographer in, in this franchise. He's... A biochemist student, uh, some engineering and science. Uh, again, he's a good person raised by his aunt and uncle. And and in this franchise, we get the the most tragic, probably, version of Uncle Ben's death. And it's kind of like the, the first time we saw it happen with Batman. And uh, Batman begins when he loses his parents. It's very similar to that. Um, but again, I think the one knock against him is Peter Parker is it's not necessary because I think we've been exposed to it so often with recent like de- last decade of superhero movies and especially Marvel movies where they have to be very funny and it's almost basically Marvel movies are kind of now the new comedies in a way 
And so P- Toby's Peter is probably the least funny version of the character. Not that he doesn't do very funny there are things. Moments, yeah. Like Pizza Time in, in Spider-Man 2 is one of the funniest th- scenes I've ever seen so in my life. when he's trying to do the webbing, he's yeah. like, Shazam! But I mean, in terms of like his his one-liners aren't really there like it is with Andrew specifically and Tom Holland. Yeah, and that's because the, the, the tone of superhero movies has, have changed where Marvel has capitalized on you're right. They are. They they've become the new comedies in a lot of ways. They're funnier than comedies that come out, and um, they tapped into the combining spectacle with comedy and drama, and that's a great winning uh, formula. And that's why the movies are so successful. And this one, this film, I think Sam Raimi was just going for making a great dramatic movie, and it, it is very tragic. I think that um, obviously the Tom Holland one has some tragedy, and Andrew Garfield one goes through those as well. But this one is the most nuanced in. Um, I think the transformation of Peter Parker in this film is is greater than any of the others as well. I agree. And Tobey Maguire, he's not like he's a good looking guy, but he's not like the chiseled leading man Hollywood kind of like super handsome actor. He's not like Hemsworth, you know what I mean? And that's why he works so well in the role because he just he looks like an average guy, you know what I mean? He's not like he doesn't look like an unattainable perfect movie star image, you know what I mean? And that's what makes him relatable because to us he's like oh he's just like he looks like he's a friend of ours yeah that's what what we look like when we look in the mirror we look like toby mcguire in a way sort of (laughs) (laughs) and then um andrew mcguire (laughs) (laughs) yes andy mcguire and then andrew garfield was the reinvention of the character in 2012 with the amazing spider-man i think he was 29 when he got that role yeah and uh which was a lot older than was older than toby of course and like Maybe for me, when I watch the, the Amazing Spider-Mans, he's maybe the least believable as the Peter Parker visually because Andrew Garfield's a good-looking guy. He's got the jawline. He's a very cool-looking— He's got the hair. He's got the hair. He's, he's very cool-looking, and he skateboards in this movie, which is also very cool. And it's kind of like takes away from the relatability and loner kind of wallflower, maybe sort of unpopular person. I know what you mean because he's cool. He's, he's too like he's kind of he's, too cool in this movie. He's like, how does he not have friends? I, say, yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah, and so not that it isn't doesn't work because I think Andrew's great as Peter Parker. He's he's the funniest version of of Spider Man. I think in my opinion, these yeah. movies are hysterical. He captured the sarcastic, playful tone of Spider Man, which a lot of people were waiting to see because he's like that in a lot of the comics where he's just like making fun of bad guys and just being super funny and sarcastic a lot of the time, like when he when he shoots the webs at that guy's groin and stuff. Yeah, and uh, Andrew Garfield's character does a lot more of, like, engineering as, in addition to the science and stuff, too. Like, he develops his own uh, version of the webbing, the mechanical webbing, whereas Tobey Maguire, his Peter Parker, is the organic internal webbing that's part of his body and part of his transformation. And, and in the comics, Spider-Man always had the mechanical webbing, and then they actually changed in the comics after the success of the first movies— they, they started making new comics where Peter Parker was had natural organic webbing and fans were not happy with it. So they actually changed it back in the comics to mechanical. I actually prefer the organic one, I think, because it coincides with Tobey Maguire's um, problems and dilemmas he has struggling with the character of being Spider-Man and being Peter Parker throughout his story arc, which we'll get into later on. But I like the organic webbing. I, I think the mechanical webbing is very cool. And obviously, Holland develops his own kind of synthetic webbing which Tony Stark helps give him with the mechanism for his suit. Yeah, and but I really like this aspect of the Andrew Garfield Peter Parker because yes, the Toby one is he's very smart and he he's and he, like when he talks to um 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 Osborne, he's super impressed that he like read his books and understood it all. But also, they didn't really show too much of that. Whereas in Amazing Spider-Man, we show him actually building things and 
that he is a, a great engineer as well. And so I think that was a great way to depict that in The Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, you're right. The only times we get like Toby like really showing his intelligence as Peter Parker is like when he's in class or when he's having those conversations Dr. Like, with Dr. Octavius yeah. and he's keeping up and everything. We don't show see him doing too much on his He doesn't his do engineering own, like in his room kind yeah. of like building stuff. So yeah, you're but right. Like, but like in The Amazing Spider-Man, Peter's room is decked out with all this like engineering mechanical gear so he's and, like he has that door that locks itself you know what I mean he's so he's very smart and they showed that aspect to the character that they kind of missed the mark on in the first film in the first franchise but they that wasn't their tone for the first ones yeah they were definitely going for an edgy tone with the Andrew Garfield version yeah I mean he's a skateboarder like he, he's super sarcastic and I think the strength of those movies would definitely be um, the chemistry between Gwen Stacy and Peter Parker because Garfield and Emma Stone had so much on great on-screen chemistry where as Toby and Kirsten Dunst they're great together but I've just didn't it don't didn't have the same caliber of chemistry as Garfield and Stone I think I can agree with that for sure yeah and then Tom Holland plays the Marvel version of Spider-Man he didn't appear until Civil War was the first appearance where basically Tony Stark um, hires him or recruits him to be mm -hmm. an Avenger and Tom Holland's obviously the most believable to be a high schooler because he was 19 or 20 when they started filming his movies. And I think his franchise is probably the most accurate to what it's like to be a teenager today in terms of modern settings and modern high schools and relationships. His Peter Parker also has a very high intellect, like he develops his own spiderweb in class under the desk in secret. And he's just also a very funny, charming guy, but he's he's the most like maybe clumsy and innocent and kind of he's a kid at times and the, the other two they're, they're adults and they seem like adults when, on camera but tom holland's character he's childish sometimes yeah he's naive yeah and innocent like you said and that's what what's great about him because like garfield he's very funny and very charming but he also plays that like nervousness and uncomfort in his um discomfort in social situations really well you know what I mean? That you can just see, like, he's a great actor. He does these cool facial tics, and he, you can see that he's nervous around other people. And I think that he's, Holland's is always, like, he's being surprised, and, like, his mind's being blown all the time because he's a kid. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's, like, constantly surprised by his powers and the situations he's in, and he's always, like, commenting on things, like how crazy that is or making pop culture references. And so I think that he was extremely rel relatable as a kid because in so many of the Spider-Man comics, he is a high schooler still. I think it was a great idea to just not even have him graduate. Just keep him in high school for the whole time. Just keep him a high schooler because the other two films he graduates and becomes an adult. But they wanted to really keep that teen movie vibe for the entire franchise. So these were very much inspired by John Hughes movies. And so they wanted him to just be a kid the whole time. And then into the Spider-Verse, we actually get two versions of Peter Parker as well as the new character, the new Spider-Man, Miles Morales, who is played, who's voiced by Shamik Moore. In the video game, he's voiced by someone else. Mm. And this is a great version of Spider-Man because, we, of course, we get the two versions of Spider-Man, of Peter Parker, where Chris Pine plays, like, the the hero in Miles' reality. And yeah. he's, like, the classic superhero, and he's got he's the blonde hair and everything, and he's he's a, he's a great Spider-Man. And then we get Jack Johnson. Jake. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> And then Jake Johnson voices the other Peter Parker, like the washed-up version of him in the other reality. Yeah. And, it, and Miles is very similar, obviously, to Peter Parker. He's basically a reinvention of the character, young, intelligent, somewhat unnoticed socially, and, again, just a, a very good character with a great heart. 
And it's a very relatable story for that character, I think, for a lot of young people nowadays. And also, like, it's it's just a really fun movie. You have all the other Spider-Mans, like the noir Spider-Man and the Spider-Pig. And (laughs) Nick Cage plays the noir one, and he's so funny. He goes, like, for, like, a Humphrey Bogart accent. And the first time, I didn't even know it was him, and then I heard him. I was like, oh, my God, that's Nick Cage. And this is a a great depiction for um, the new Spider-Man, new generation, because they're fans of Miles Morales, and they always wanted to have him um, as the new Spider-Man. And um, there were rumors about it happening live action, but... I think that going animated was a smart idea because Marvel was they had to tap they had to double on with Marvel, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Sony was like we got to go with Marvel and make this new version of Spider-Man so then they're still able to do their own separate thing with the animated Spider-Verse film. Yeah, I'm sure at some point they'll do a live action one with Miles Morales as Spider-Man because the video game and the comic book versions of that character are super popular right now. And then I would love to talk about next how each Peter Parker got their powers and talk about the transformation process of turning into Spider-Man. And obviously Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker is the classic version where he gets bit by that genetically modified super spider on that field trip while he's creepily taking photos of MJ. <laughs> <laughs> and this is cool because Tobey's Spider-Man, like you said, is the most transformative. He His f- physical transformation is completely noticeable. He he goes from being very skinny to actually having bulked on muscle basically overnight. And to- We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Change, big yeah. change, <laughs> big changes. And uh, Toby trained, I think, extensively for like what he did two months of like high intensity six yoga, months. six months of yoga because they shot the early part, him skinny earlier on. And then they just went to, they took a break from the filming. So they waited for him to bulk up to actually have that noticeable appearance. This episode is also sponsored by movieposters.com. Use our special coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. If you're looking at our, our videos on YouTube, you can see that our set is decked out with these insanely awesome posters. Movieposters.com sent them to us. These are high quality. They look amazing. If you're a fan of movies, if you're a fan of TV, what better way to express that fandom than to get a bunch of movie posters, throw them in your bedroom, throw them all over your house. It's the best way to show that you're a true fan. And the best place to go online is movieposters.com. Use our special promo code, Raiders 15 to get 15% off your order today. Again, Raiders 15 to get 15% off. Yeah, it was smart of them to do that reflection in the mirror to show the transformation. And this is a great transformation. One of my favorite parts about the scene itself when he gets bit by the spider is I always thought it was CGI. But the spider they used was actually a real spider that crawled onto him. And they actually put the spider under with anesthesia and painted it red and blue. And then um, when it woke up, then when they were ready to film it, they put him on the hand. I don't think the bite 
was real, obviously. I think that CGI, but the spider itself was a real spider. Hopefully, no harm came to that spider. And uh, in addition to the physical transformation, Toby's Spider-Man, Peter Parker, doesn't use glasses anymore. And he's got, obviously, all the familiar um, powers of Spider-Man. He can climb on walls, Spidey sense, super speed, super strength. Um, and everything's just heightened around him. And it's great. I love the discovery aspect of this sequence when he's discovering all these different things. Yeah, and then when he accidentally discovers that he has webbing that can come out and then he's trying to figure out and he does all those like hand gestures to try to do like the rock and roll one and everything. And yeah. then he finds the correct like hand pattern to create this, the webbing to come out of his wrist. That's what I'd like about these, the natural organic web shooters because it feels like a little like Cronenberg-esque uh, in terms of like it's body horror, but not horror. And Raimi is so good with special effects in that kind of area with the horror genre where he brought that into a family-friendly movie. And that's why I really like that over the... I mean, the, the mechanical ones obviously are the way the character is, but I like this because it shows like the mutation of his body. Yeah. You know what I mean? The true change of the biology of his of his um, biological makeup. Yeah, it's more supernatural in a way, which is a lot more yeah. enticing. And then it, I remember... When Spider-Man, the, the Tobey Maguire ones were the biggest movies when we were kids. They're Whenever one came out, it was like, oh, Spider-Man's coming out this year. And there were ads everywhere for it. And I remember there was, I think it was a Burger King ad where um, it's a, it was a funny joke where they showed two window washers like on a skyscraper wiping off the webbing. Because it's like, well, who cleans off all of his webbing? Because I believe the mechanical one it retracts into the other yeah, Spider-Mans. Yeah. And in terms of, there's actually a crazy fact about the original teaser trailer. Um, so in the, in the first teaser trailer for the first Spider-Man... It was just a, a cut up quick version of one scene in the movie and it involved uh it actually involved a bank heist that Spider-Man thwarts by um the bank robbers rob a bank and they escape on a helicopter. And then Spider-Man catches the helicopter with his webbing, makes a giant web in between the two twin towers. And so the helicopter gets stuck in his webbing uh for police to find them. But they had to cut this scene out of the movie because of 9-11. And so this was a big scene in the early, in the first act of the film where he he stops this helicopter and um obviously they had to get rid of it but it that was the first footage anyone ever saw of Spider-Man. Yeah, and throughout Toby's Peter Parker and his transformation, he's also dealing with his own personal life and he's trying to impress MJ and he signs up for that wrestling contest because now he has these <laughs> he powers wants the car. he wants to buy a car to impress her and because that's what Flash has. He has that cool yeah, car. Yeah, 17-year-old Flash. And then yeah. uh, he made... <laughs> <laughs> Joe Mangelato looks like he's 35. Yeah, he's. there's no way he's 17 in this movie. He's enormous. And then um, he makes that first Spider-Man costume with like basically spray paint, and he goes to that wrestling match. And it's, it's really cool to see the transformation of him becoming Spider-Man and making his suit. And it's fun to see Bruce Campbell as the announcer. Yeah. yeah. And then Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker, he basically is kind of on this, this clue hunt looking into the disappearance of his parents and the connection with Dr. Kurt Connors at Oscorp. And while he's at Oscorp, he sneaks into that restricted area, and that's where he gets bit by that radioactive spider there, and he gets the remarkable strength and agility and superpowers. And his transformation, it's not physical and aesthetically, but it's it's a really funny way that he discovers his super strength and everything. Like, he's in the bathroom getting ready yeah, for yeah. work, and the toothpaste, all of it squirts on the wind, on the mirror, yeah. and he breaks, like, all the handles and knobs of the sink, and, the, yeah. and he's trying to open the door with just his, his two fingers, and it's absolutely hysterical uh, little scene. Yeah, it's like Goku... Uh, when he when he comes back from like the hyperbolic chamber, yeah. he's super strong. <laughs> he's like breaking all the bowls when he's trying to eat rice. This is a very funny scene. And then also, so the transformation of this Peter Parker, they they showed that it was actually intentional by his father because he has this certain um, engineered blood that made him um, 
it gave him the ability to accept the spider DNA without killing him. And um, that's why Harry Osborn wants his blood in the second film. And so they showed that it was in intended for him to actually get the eventually get bit by these spiders. And it was always like um, his father's goal. So it's they, I, I'm not sure if that's in the comics, but I think they switched it up a little bit. Um, but it's an interesting take on the background and the origin of the story. Yeah, because what they did with the the Amazing Spider-Man is they connected the disappearance and deaths of his of his parents to Oscorp, and yeah. so it's a much more personal story in terms of the connections with Oscorp and Doctor Connors. Connors. Yeah, which is why that that relationship between them two develops. And then there's that hilarious scene on the subway where he's discovering like his super strength and like he accidentally beats up all those people on the subway. Yeah, they think he's trying to rip the shirt off the girl, but his hands are just sticky. <laughs> so it's really funny. And then Tom's transformation into spider-man we never see he's already spider-man and that's what we're talking about in civil war when tony stark comes to recruit him he's like spider boy this is you and he's like i know who you are and yeah. everything and so he already has his powers and he's I, had them for six months i think i kind of like this you know it's the same thing with how they don't show uncle ben in this universe it's like we've seen it twice in the last eight years we don't have to see it again i i love it it's my it's my favorite aspect about the tom holland movies where we didn't have to see the origin story we don't have to see uncle ben die we don't have to see him discover his powers like they went back to, like, there have been so many origin stories of the past 15 years. Like, we don't need to do another one. Let's just, he's already Spider-Man. We all know how he yeah. gets his, his powers. We don't need to see. It's like a, a waste of time, you know yeah. what I mean, to At see this the whole point, background. Yeah. And, in fact, David Fincher was actually asked by Sony to make the first Spider-Man because he's always worked with Sony for his movies. And his idea was that he didn't want to waste time with the origin story either. And so he wanted to do the entire origin story of Spider-Man and the opening credits. Because he always does an opening credit sequence, you know. And so he would have told the entire story of uh, Uncle Ben and Peter getting his powers, getting bit by the spider within the five-minute title sequence to, to open the movie. So With a Nine Inch Nails song, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Man, he loves those guys. <laughs> and then um, I, I think one of my favorite parts of, like, early crime fighting for Peter Parker in the Tom Holland version is is when he's like trying to fight crime for the first time and he's got his suit and it's his first day on the job basically and he's trying to help people but he's kind of messing them up and then he like that guy was trying to break into his own car and he like hits him with the web he's like hey guy what are you trying to do steal a car that's not good everyone's like what are you doing that's his own car <laughs> doesn't he like help an old lady cross the road yeah, he's, he, yeah he helps her with directions and stuff <laughs> so it's like a really funny like Tom Holland's Spider-Man is definitely hilarious yeah. and like the early days of Peter Parker it's great when he's trying to figure out what he's doing 100% and so obviously Miles Morales he gets bit when he's in that spray paint in the area of the train station that his brother, Uncle Aaron, I mean, his Uncle Aaron takes him to. Yeah, that Aaron took him to. And uh, he goes through, I think, a similar transformation as Tobey Maguire, where you're seeing it, um, different aspects of his powers appear. And I think it, it, it did a great job with the animation. I love the part where he's standing on the side of the apartment complex, like struggling to understand what he's doing, like standing upright and stuff. It's a really, really fun sequence. Let's talk about the costumes because they are all iconic. And obviously Spider-Man is one of the, maybe besides Superman might be the most iconic, if not most in all of the last 20 years. It is now but in general of all superheroes is probably the most fun. I love it. It's, it might be my favorite superhero costume of all time. And obviously Toby's in the Sam Raimi universe. It's original. It's classic. It's like if I was going to dress up for Halloween as Spider-Man, I'd want the suit from Spider-Man 2. It's like a little different than the, the one in Spider-Man 1. It's like darker blues and darker reds. It's just classic and cool. Yeah, I feel like they really 
took from the animated series costume, not the comic book ones. You know what I mean? I felt like that was the closest one I've seen to the animated series. Yeah, because if you're talking about the comic books, Amazing Spider-Man 2 probably is the most comic book accurate because that's when he has those big gr- uh, yellowish looking eyes. So yeah. like, the big eyes are very uh, re- relatable to the comic books. That's what fans were super excited about with the big eyes. I remember those. Those were big news stories back then when they were in production. But Spider- Amazing Spider-Man 1, the eyes aren't the, as big in the costumes. a little different. It's like a little edgy. It's more edgy take on... On the uh, Spider-Man that 2 whole, and That 3 whole one. take on Spider-Man, it feels like p- punk Rocky. You Kinda, know what yeah, I mean? Grungy. Absolutely. And then Tom Holland's suits are easily the most technologically advanced and appealing, I think, in the cinematic atmosphere because the expressive eyes are so important to show, like, for Spider-Man to express his emotions because he's always wearing a mask. And you, you usually get the great voiceovers with, with Andrew Garfield and with Tobey Maguire, but with Holland, you get the voiceover with the expressive eyes, and it's so fun to watch. And also, his suit is inspired by the original suit in the comic books, so it has the most classic interpretation of the suit. Like the large black stroke around yeah, the eyes. Yeah, and the spider is like the original spider. And also, Tom Holland has like the most badass repertoire of suits. I mean, he's got the the red and black suit that he develops, too. He has built-in artificial intelligence. He also has, like, fun uh, the features, wings. The, the wings, too, yeah. so he can kind of glide and fly. Um, he also has the iron Spider-Man suit, obviously. The stealth suit, the, the night monkey suit, which he uses in, uh, in the second film. So he has a huge collection and obviously the most innovative technology because he's probably got like $20 million easily worth of tech. Yeah, they made him a, a kind of like a, a, like a Peter Parker blended with Tony Stark when, in those films. So it's a, it's a new take and a lot more fun because I don't know if that happened in the comics. It probably did in certain comic books because we're not, we're not big comic book readers, so we aren't super familiar. But I thought it was a fun take on the character in the new ones. And Miles Morales' suit is probably like the most badass suit because it's black and red and it's, it's super edgy. And I think it's uh, it looks great in contrast with the other um, Spider-Men that he, and women that he fights with. And what I like a lot with Miles and his costume and everything is he, a lot of times he's wearing like a sweatshirt and a hoodie at the same time, which makes sense. He's in New York. It's probably freezing. So why wouldn't he have a hoodie on while he's Spider-Man at the same time? So it's actually a really cool aspect to the character that I never really thought of until I saw the movie. What's really cool about the marketing for the first Spider-Man movie is... Um, for for pretty much for most movies, um, poster design, all the font and text, oftentimes it's it's custom made fonts by graphic artists. So people will design these fonts on these movie posters, and so they're completely unique, original works. And so for the Spider-Man franchise, the original one, it has that iconic font for the Spider-Man. Sony loved that text so much, and they loved the font so much that they ended up using the identical custom made font for the release of PlayStation Three. And so that's why PlayStation 3 has the exact same font as Spider-Man. Never noticed that. Yeah. And then we should probably talk about the love interests. So obviously in Tobey Maguire, Sam Raimi's universe, we have the classic MJ played by Kirsten Dunst. And she's basically the exact opposite of Peter Parker. She's she's very popular in high school. She dates Flash Thompson, who's a complete D, D-bag to <laughs> Peter Parker. And again, played by 38-year-old Joe Mangiello at the time. <laughs> 38 <laughs> But MJ, you know, she's she's a very innocent person. She has a good heart. She she obviously has a crush on Peter. You can t- you can kind of see, but it's that social environment in high school where like I'm not sure she knows she has a crush on him. Maybe not yet because she, she says she she later on the film she's like she didn't realize that she loved him, but she's always been the one there. You and know what I mean? Maybe never knows him because it's the same thing with the hot girl takes off the glasses. It's, yeah, yeah. it's such a stereotype. When you take off glasses, you're apparently attractive, more attractive. But, yeah, than and also like they grew up next door to each other, so they grew up together. So they have 
always been with around each other and it's kind of creepy how close his window is to her yeah and like she how often he's looking at her and how she, how does she not know that this like 16 year old hormonal boy is like not looking at you through his there's window there's no way she doesn't always have her blinds down in real life <laughs> <laughs> mom dad P peter's staring at me again <laughs> you talked about me <laughs> but it's a very classic kind of romance and relationship it's it's very familiar of like old hollywood in a way and we obviously have one of the best movie kisses ever with um Spider-Man upside down in the rain, kissing MJ after he saves her. And this this is actually a funny scene because Tobey Maguire like almost kind of drowned while they were filming this because water kept rushing into his mouth and nose, and they were trying to get the shot, but he couldn't breathe because all this water is pouring all the into his sciences were filled up. Like when you think about it, you write the scene and you're like, oh, this is gonna be great. It'll storyboard looks great. But then when you actually go to film it, they didn't realize that oh, water's gonna be running into his face the entire time. Yeah, this that's is probably great. gonna be a problem. And, and what's the, another great scene that kind of goes under the radar? which is an amazing stunt is the, the lunchroom scene where um, he and M when MJ slips and he catches her and then he, he grabs her tray and catches all the different items of food as they fall down. And none of that is CGI. That was all done practically. And there are no strings or wire work. And, and after 156 takes, he finally performed the stunt exactly as we see it in the films. Th that's a crazy day on set. And MJ, she does have great moments as a character, but I think ultimately which the other films improved upon was that she basically was always a damsel in distress where she wasn't really involved in the goals of the movies. And she was always just the romantic interest. Whereas Gwen Stacy and is involved in helping Peter and his goals in the, in the conflicts of the film. And so MJ's great in this, in these movies, but she does, she is a little bit too much of a damsel, I think. Yeah. Which is unfortunate because it's definitely an interesting character that you can uh, monopolize on the story. And then they have the love tri triangle with them two and Harry Osborne later on in yeah. number three. And uh, yeah, in the first one too. Yeah. In the yeah. first one. So it's kind of odd to, I mean, you wish they could have done it differently, but I still like Kirsten Dunst in this role and she's, she's perfect as, as MJ and. And you're right. She does have. She's more important in the second one too, where she starts to become her own person, and she yeah. is a movie, is a is a theater star, and you know, uh, Peter Parker uh, sees her every day on the billboard when he drives yeah. by on his little scooter. Yeah. He's like, get to see you every day, and so she has more to do, I think, in the second and third one than the first one. Where you're you're right. She's just kind of like something that Peter Parker always wants. Yeah, and in the second one, it, it has one of my favorite moments in all of the franchises is that moment where. During the climax where he's battling Doc Ock in that uh, big building on the on the harbor, and then his mask uh, is off, and then she finally sees his face, and he's wearing the Spider-Man costume, and she like shows that she she's a great actor. She really sold that scene, and I I always got goosebumps when I see that scene when she finally sees that he is Spider-Man. It's a great moment. Yeah, I think that might be the best reveal of Peter Parker showing the love interest in the films who he truly is. Yeah, it's it's great. Because with Zendaya in the in the Spider-Man Marvel one, she deduces it herself, basically. Yeah, it's really funny. Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker tells Gwen. So they're talking on the rooftop, and she's like, she's walking away, and then he shoots his web at her and pulls her back in, and she like does that spin into his arms. That's how he reveals it as like a fun thing to do. You know what I mean? It's like halfway through the movie, which I like because I think it's more fun. The sooner people find out the secret identity of Peter Parker, like yeah. with Aunt May finding out, it takes her a while to figure out in the Sam Raimi universe. She finds out at the end of uh, Tom Holland's Spider-Man at the very last shot, which is super funny great, to show yeah. her like, oh shit. And I, but I love how Ned finds out like 40 minutes in the movie that he's Spider-Man, yeah. which is great because Ned is such a fun character because I don't know if he's from the comics or not. I'm guessing he isn't, but it's just great to have someone who's not 
a, a typical character that we're used to seeing in the in this franchise. Just a friend, a high school friend, be like part of his team now. You know it's, what I mean? It's more fun for the audience, I think, to have yeah. someone else in the story that knows who Spider-Man truly is. Yeah, because there's so much great back and forth between the two of them because they're like working together and collaborating and trying that, to keep it all secret. That adds a great dynamic to the movie. And then the Amazing Spider-Man, we get Gwen Stacy, played by Emma Stone, which was great to not do MJ again, I think. And Emma Stone is seriously charming and hilarious, and her personality is on full display in this character, just like to counter Andrew Garfield and his natural charisma and, and humor. And uh, Gwen's a senior research officer at Oscorp Industries, and this is obviously where when Peter Parker goes there to tr apply for the internship and, and they stumble upon each other. And this is, like I said earlier, Gwen has a lot to do with the actual plot. She's very heavily involved in the conflict from beginning to end of both of these movies. And so I, th I think that's why she's probably the strongest love interest of all the movies because she has so much to do and is actually vital to the plots of the films. And uh, like I said earlier, Garfield and Stone, I think, hands down, have the most chemistry among all the Spider-Man couples. And you can see why they actually were a couple for a long time in real life because they just have that natural vibe together and they just seem so believable as a couple and then zendaya plays michelle which is basically a reinvention of mj in tom holland and marvel's spider-man and this was zendaya's big film breakout of course alongside holland and michelle or mj is the exact opposite of the typical mary jane or mj we've seen like in the toby mcguire sam raimi universe because mj is also academically gifted just like peter parker she's all she's kind of like peter parker she's a loner but she's like incredibly sarcastic and hilarious in these movies she's and into like dark stuff yeah, yeah. and i i really like the wardrobe of uh, michelle mj in these movies because it felt so realistic to like when you see love interests in movies and teen comedies like the girls love interests they're they're always kind of dressed in a similar kind of tone in a style uh like the most mainstream Whereas this MJ, she's kind of like grungy and very punky in the way she dresses and, and her hair is like often tied to the side. Like she doesn't like, a, she doesn't make a big deal about looking perfect like we're typically used to seeing. And also she's not sexualized in this movie or objectified. So I thought it was so refreshing the way that this character um, dresses. It felt so realistic to like, like what a lot of young teens dress like in high school, like they're like, I went through a punk phase. I went through a skater phase. You know what I mean? Have you left it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I've never skated. <laughs> but So I really thought that it was a, a, refreshing, a refreshing look for the character. And also what was refreshing was the relationship between Zendaya's M Michelle or MJ and Tom Holland's Peter Parker, where we have, like, the mutual secret crush on each other because yeah. they never show that in the other ones, really, because Gwen doesn't—she didn't, didn't know who Peter really was yet until they stumbled upon each other at Oscorp. Mm -hmm. And then same thing with Toby and MJ. It never shows MJ having that secret crush. But you can argue that MJ or Michelle in the Marvel ones— has that secret crush, or you could say that she's just keeping an eye on Peter because she thinks he's Spider-Man, but at the same time, she's watching him for reasons. I think she's watching him because she also has that secret crush in addition to suspecting he's Spider-Man, just oh, like I Holland's character is, has a secret crush on MJ. Absolutely, that's 100% true, because when um, when she tells him that she knows he's Spider-Man, he asks, oh, so were you just watching me because you thought I was Spider-Man, or was it for something else? And then she 
clearly lies and says, oh, no, it was just because I thought you were Spider-Man. So she clearly had a crush on him from day one. Which is what happens with high schoolers. They, you they, have they, mutual yeah. crushes. You don't know how to communicate. You're, not, you're like very shy when you're that young and you don't know how to express yourself and you often hide your crushes and you're terrified to talk to them. So I think that... It's great because they were both in this, each other's the same shoes, you know what I mean? Whereas in the first one, Peter is, MJ is like unattainable because she's a cool kid. Whereas in um, the Marvel ones, they're both on the same level and they're both both very similar. And then in Into the Spider-Verse, we have Gwen Stacy or Gwanda in the movie as she goes by to, to, to kind of keep her identity secret in, in Miles' reality because Gwen Stacy in, in the Into the Spider-Verse, she's a different dimensional reality version of Gwen Stacy with the spider-like abilities. Who so takes, she got the power. Yeah, so she got, and she takes up the uh, alias of Wanda, mistaken as Gwanda, <laughs> while Miles is at school. <laughs> Gwanda, it's so funny. <laughs> and um, I think that there's obviously an aged gap between these two because he's still a kid, but... It, I think it sets up a romance in the future films if they hopefully they make them because they end up she figures out how to communicate with him through dimensions. They have a relationship in the comics, I believe, in yeah. the video game. So mm -hmm. I'm sure that they'll build that. Yeah. And I want to talk about comedy too. And in, in terms of comedy, all all of these franchises are funny. Of course, the Sam Raimi ones we talk about are are maybe less punchliney because this is again before the Marvel MCU universe became the new face of comedy films and Again, Toby doesn't bring a ton of natural comedy or charisma to his role. There, of course, are plenty of funny moments. Like Pizza Time is still one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen in my life. And then, like, that's very much like a silent film era comedy. Yeah, exactly. Like him coming out of the L of that all closet the with all the moss and everything. Over. That's a Elizabeth hilarious Banks scene. Is like, yeah, I'm not so, paying for that. So there, oh, are, no, no, it's um, uh, Zoe Deschanel sister, yeah, Emily yeah, Deschanel. Yeah. And so there are very funny moments in the Sam Raimi universe, but they're not like one-liners like they are now. And it's not like sarcastic humor, really. It's not, it doesn't have that back and forth. You yeah. know what I mean? And then the Amazing Spider-Man movies are drop-dead hilarious. Like these are legit, could be classified as comedies because there's so many funny moments in them. And you can tell Garfield and Stone improved a lot. Like so much of their dialogue, I'm sure they were just like, just keep going, just go with it and see what happens. And so they're both extremely funny and extremely charming in real life, and they brought those to the roles. And again, the Marvel Spider-Man movies, and even Into the Spider-Verse, this is the new version of superheroes in the Marvel Universe, and all these movies are hysterical. Especially start, like, since Thor Ragnarok, every Marvel movie is makes me laugh my ass off, and so that's just kind of the world we're living in with these storylines and these characters, and obviously the Holland ones are hysterical, and Into the Spider-Verse is also very funny. Yeah, they, they do a great job with comedy, because it Marvel realized it's a vital part to make audiences love movies is to make them laugh. So it's it's important to the films. And each Peter Parker has a best friend, and uh, it's obviously Harry Osborn in the first in Toby's universe, and also in Andrew Garfield's universe, and then Ned Leeds in um, Ned in in the Marvel universe, and then I would say that Miles' uncle Aaron, Aaron is yeah. like kind of like a combination of his best friend and also Uncle Ben character at the same time. And second father, yeah, second father figure. And then not to mention the washed up other reality <laughs> Peter Parker is kind of his best friend in this movie too. Yeah, well, he comes as a mentor, I would say. Yeah. Um, but I think Ned's my favorite best friend because Harry Osborn's a cool character and I think Franco did a great job uh, in the first two. I'm, I wasn't a huge fan of his in the third film. Um, I think it's just the character. I think yeah. what they did with him yeah, was... Yeah, that's what we'll I'm saying. We'll talk about that in a little bit. The character. But yeah. But um, I think Ned's the funniest. And also the Harry Osborn in Amazing Spider-Man 2. Uh, interesting take, but also I wasn't the biggest fan of it. Yeah, but I think Dane Dehan's a great actor. Yeah, though. terrific actor. 
now let's get into the villains, which is going to be a juicy topic to talk about because we have a ton of great ones. Um, just to just name them off, in Toby and Sam, Sam Raimi's universe, we have the two Green Goblins. We have Venom, Sandman, Dr. Oct Dr. Octopus. In the Amazing Spider-Man universe, we have the, the Lizard, another Green Goblin, Electro. Obviously, we have Rhino too, but he's just kind of just in a couple of scenes. And then in the Marvel ones... Tom Holland's Spider-Man. We have Vulture and Mysterio. And these are just main villains. And then also in Into the Spider-Verse, Wilson Fisk, a.k.a. Kingpin, which is the villain, which is really cool because we've only really seen him in Daredevil, which I, I thought was so fun to use him as the villain. Yeah, he's as much a villain in Daredevil as he is in the Spider-Man comics. He's very heavy, heavily used in the Spider-Man comics. And so let's start with... Uh, Sam the OG. The OG, let's Sam Raimi and Tony Maguire. Start with Willem Dafoe, man. Norman Osborn. Played by Willem Dafoe, one of his best roles. It's so fun to watch him because he seems like he had so much fun doing this character. And Norman Osborn is an industrialist and he's made a fortune, but his, his company's in trouble because he's trying to get this new super soldier serum to work, but the, the military doesn't want to buy it and they're giving him a deadline. So Norman Osborn, out of desperation, uses himself as the first human trial for this super soldier serum. Unfortunately, it turns him into the Green Goblin. I love this portrayal because... First of all, Willem Dafoe is an extremely underrated actor, and he just crushes this role. I think it's the best Spider-Man villain out of all of the movies. I don't think many people will disagree with me on that. And it re he really showed the transition from, uh, he's he's a good man, he's flawed, but he is, he is trying to be a, a he's trying to be a father as much as he can, but he's obviously very busy with his with his company. But he he is a good man, but then he turns into a complete psychopath because of the serum, and also the duality is created within his mind of Norman Osborn contrasted with Goblin. And you, he does a great job, like that mirror scene when he first talks to Goblin for the first time and he's talking to the reflection in his mirror. Like Raimi does it in like mostly one take and Willem Dafoe does an amazing job of just performing these two characters simultaneously. And you can see he really portrays the duality within Norman Osborn after he's um, given the serum. Because he does put on an act as a, in this role because Norman Osborn, he can't reveal his identity as being the Green Goblin. And throughout the story, throughout the movie, he's still putting on the facade of Norman Osborn. But again, it shows that somewhere deep down, maybe Norman still exists in that psyche somewhere. Or, or maybe it's maybe the Green Goblin just putting on the show and letting Norman just out for a, a little time to play. But it's it's really interesting to watch, especially like when Norman comes over for Thanksgiving and Peter's not there, but because Peter was just uh, fighting Green Goblin, or he, what was he doing? He, yeah, he was just fighting him because Peter was just fighting Green Goblin, and then uh, Peter's hiding um, out on the ceiling, then outside the what the, that the, what a great scene the window. It's such a great scene, and yeah. then Norman his heightened senses he hears the blood drop and he sees it on the floor. But it's it's just great to see the internal struggle that Norman Osborn constantly has in this movie of trying to either hold the Green Goblin at bay at specific times or try to maybe have some sort of humanity left inside of him. I think by the third act, he Goblin is completely taken over Norman. They don't really have a scene where the, you can it's discernible, but I think you don't have to show it because I think, I mean, ultimately, Goblin's doing everything. But Norman does um, fight against Goblin at certain times where they're, when they're debating what to do. And then um, Goblin's... I think when Goblin convinces him to go after Peter Parker... That's when Goblin takes over completely. When they then he attacks Aunt May. Yeah, because at some point the villains always find out Spider-Man's true identity, and it's a great final battle scene between the two characters. And 
they're in that abandoned building exchanging punches and blows and then um spider-man's getting whooped for yeah, a while he, he does get whipped a little bit but he outsmarts norman osborne to defeat him with his own glider and again it's a great character probably you're right might be my favorite villain of all the spider-man movies yeah and also it sets up um the motivation for harry to become the next goblin really well and uh they originally had dr Ock in the in the first screenplay but they wrote him out because it made the plot a little too complicated but dr octavius is the is the villain in the second spider-man which is probably the best spider-man movie of them all yeah spider-man 2 is phenomenal it's one of the best comic book movies ever i put it i have it listed as number three yeah i don't blame you it's, it's fantastic and dr octavius he becomes you know like a mentor to peter and um there's that great scene where peter and him are becoming close he's having dinner with him and his wife and he's understanding every saying everything he's saying and doc ock even gives him terrible advice on how to woo mary jane with poetry <laughs> which definitely doesn't work yeah he you, he's super relatable, and you really empathize with Octavius in this film. And then you see the death of his wife and how that changes him and makes him desperate to achieve his goal. And he becomes um, blinded by the the grief he he feels and the regret he has, and that completely transforms him into the villain. Yeah. Whereas Norman Osborn became a villain out of desperation. It was out of pain and grief for Otto because he dedicates his life and research to building the sustainable fusion power reactor with his wife's help. But unfortunately, during the experiment that he's showing to everyone um, with his uh, artificially intelligent, super mechanical arms that are impervious to heat and magnetism, the experiment overloads because he pushes it too hard and it ends up killing his wife. And then um, the thing with Otto is he refuses to blame himself for his wife's death. Otto, he blames the death of, death of his wife on Spider-Man because Spider-Man is the one who pulls the plug, which causes the reactor to explode. And obviously that's how his wife dies. And then he basically takes up the form of Octavius because that, that chip in the back of his head that kept the mechanical spines under control has just been destroyed and they've kind of consumed his brain now. And Sam Raimi really brought out his horror roots in this film when he has that scene in the in the hospital where the doctors are trying to operate on Octavius while he's under and they're trying to remove the spine from his back and then the arms start atta start attacking all the doctors and surgeons and it's horrific they don't show any blood or gore but Sam Raimi's so good with horror that he really makes you feel the terror of that scene in a PG-13 movie so well in the such, shadows such a, yeah such a great scene and Alfred Molina, very underrated actor too. Like you obviously recognize him from Raiders of the Lost Ark in the opening scene. He's the guy who goes into that goes into that little temple with Indiana with the spiders. In on the his opening, back. Yeah, yeah, the opening of the of the first Indiana Jones movie. And one of my favorite scenes with just Doc Ock and Alfred Molina is after he's left the hospital that you just mentioned, and he's kind of like down, and he's talking basically internally. And, out, and externally with the mechanical arms, and he's like, they're corrupting his mind. They, they he they mouth to him, so you can under you can imagine that they're speaking to him inside of his mind. It, it's such a cool scene to watch him like lose his humanity while talking to this artificial intelligent mechanical arms. Yeah, that's a great point. In this film, at the centerpiece of this movie, I think is the greatest greatest action sequence of the whole franchise of all three franchises, and also one of the best comic book franchise action sequences ever put on film and it's the it's an amazing sequence where doc ock is robbing that bank and then spider-man starts fighting him and they first start off fighting in the bank and then they go onto the edge of the skyscraper and they climb and climb and aunt may gets in trouble and spider-man has to save her and then it and then it's followed up by them um swinging across the city where they land on that train and it's the iconic train fight where 
I remember in the theater as a kid watching this sequence, just being absolutely blown away by the the special effects, the 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 stakes, the conflict, and it's a great. Like Sam Raimi came up with the sequence, and it's a great idea. Um, it's the spectacle is amazing to have them fight on a train, and then it has the iconic moment where where Peter Parker um, pretty much almost dies trying to see trying to stop this train, and you can see just how how far he'll go to protect others, and it's that just iconic when he's got the webs on both arms attached to all the buildings behind him, and he's just holding on with everything and screaming as the train sl- finally slows down and ends up stopping at the edge. Yeah, one of my favorite parts about that scene is that he loses his mask while he's doing it, and then the the people of New York help him protect his identity after he saved all their lives, and they, they carry him through the the compartments of the train and then give his mask back to him. The little kid gives him the mask back, and it, it's a really great moment because Spider-Man is loved and hated by the city. They, some people like him, but some people don't want this vigilante trying to fight crime, and, and they, they think he's doing as much bad as he's doing good, like you can argue any vigilante does. But it really shows you the connection that Spider-Man has with the people of New York and how much they care about him and how much they appreciate him putting his life on the line for all for all of them. It kind of represents the city in that moment. Yeah, it's moments like that that really set the first two Sam Raimi movies apart from the others because— it's a powerful moment, and it's a, a very incredibly emotional uh, sequence for the film um, that obviously the other films don't have, and there's so much gravitas, and it's very profound, and it's like moments like that that really show that this movie is is on a different level from all the other Spider-Man ones. And in Sam Raimi and McGuire's Spider-Man, Peter Parker universe, one of the things that he has to do to defeat the villains is... He has to empathize with them, and he he understands them to an extent, and he helps bring them back to reality in a way, like he does with Doc Ock. He does it with Harry, and the next one, and so and he's able to emotionally connect with these characters to help stop them and to help them realize what they're doing is wrong. Yeah, it's like when he reveals his face to Octavius. That is uh, the catalyst to Octavius changing when he sees Peter Parker as Spider Man, and he's just shocked by it. And then Peter Parker. Um, speaks about those those that line that Octavius told him at dinner that really changed his perspective and made him realize that he had become a monster. Yeah, again, I think Spider-Man 2 is the best and it has the best action sequences. You're right. Every time him and Doc Ock fight, it's the best you'll see in all the movies. Yeah, 100%. And then Spider-Man 3, we get a handful of villains. We get uh, the Venom. The 64 villains yeah. in this movie. <laughs> Way too many villains. We get Venom, a.k.a. Eddie Brock, played by Topher Grace, who's a journalist. And I, I know a lot of people kind of knock on this version of Venom. I don't hate it too much. I think it's a pretty solid iteration of the character. I think Topher Grace is a good actor, and he's he's pretty funny. He's, he's very similar to Peter Parker in a way in this movie, whereas um, Tom Hardy's Venom is kind of like a badass. He's more similar to Venom than he is Eddie Brock in a way. Yeah, and I think that hit, that bad response to this kind of affected Topher Grace in film for the, few, for the, like, the next decade. Because he's a very talented guy, but obviously he didn't get many leading roles after this. And I think because people were so unhappy with it. But it's not his fault. It's the uh, how it was written. And I, I, Venom was not something that Sam Raimi wanted to put into the movie. It's the studio um, had him put Venom into the film because they thought he was the most uh, war- most recognizable villain in the Spider-Man universe besides Goblin. So they, may- they pretty much made him throw Venom in there. So I think obviously... Uh, one of the weaknesses of this film is that there's just too many. Yeah, too many villains. Because then we also have Sandman, and Sandman might be the the weakest villain in all the movies, just the way they did it. Because I I could envision like a very cool interpretation of this character in a Spider-Man movie in in modern 
uh, technology and CGI, but they kind of just turn him into like just the, a big version of the Hulk that just punches stuff the whole time. Where it could be a little more interesting the way you use his powers. And um, we have that, you know, forced motivation of he's trying to get money for his sick daughter because she has that uh, illness, which is obviously makes you empathize with that villain as well. Yeah, but I also didn't like how they changed the the history of that film franchise where he was responsible for Uncle Ben's death. I didn't like how they changed it. I remember when I was a kid and we were watching it, I was like, wait, now he killed Uncle Ben? So I think that that really took me out of liking that character too much. And so then we have Harry Osborn becomes the new Green Goblin, which I think this should have just been the main villain the whole movie. Instead of like, they give Harry Osborn like amnesia for a little while. Yeah. He doesn't remember everything. Well, first of all, you can't, you got to give props to that opening fight sequence between Peter and Harry um, when Harry attacks him in the city. Stunning special effects and i think it's in i think it's within the first 20 minutes of the movie that harry attacks him and uh, it's, it was great to see peter parker fighting without his suit on flying around and stuff so i that's a great action sequence and it's a great start for harry in that film but then like you said once he hits his head on that pipe and he's amnesia it, it kind of like Again, I'm, he just kind of has a dumb smile on his face yeah, the whole time. He's yeah. like, oh, man, I'm just I'm Harry Osborn. Best friends hey, again. hey, Peter, how are you, yeah, bud? It's yeah. like I, if you made Green Goblin the main villain the entire movie, I think it would just been so much more interesting. Yeah, it would have been really fascinating because Franco's a great actor. He could have done something really cool with it. Yeah, or maybe wait until he discovers who he is again or, or wait until because it's great when he when he throws the, the thing at the at the mirror and he sees and finds all that stuff and yeah. that his father had and he realizes who his father was and he decides to become the next Green Goblin. Yeah, that was that's that was a great ending to the second film. Yeah. What a fantastic ending. Because then you're like, oh, man. So, like, take that and make him the the big bad the entire movie. I, th I thought that's what they were going to do with Spider-Man yeah. 3, which, I mean, obviously they were getting it. But, again, this is a situation where because Peter Parker can empathize with his with his arch nemesis, he's able to coax Harry out of this mindset of being a villain to try to kill Spider-Man out of revenge, and they work together to stop Sandman. Yeah, like that's a great point. And also, I just wasn't a fan of the triangle coming back in this one between him, MJ, and Peter. And I just feel like MJ was her character was kind of just tossed to the side in this film, and she like she she kissed Harry. Like within like a couple hours of just seeing her boyfriend, you know what I mean? It just didn't make sense to me really that MJ would do that. And I think her character, the thing with that, this film was like after they, MJ and Peter kissed at the end and she left her wedding to be with him. You're like, okay, now the romance can start. And in the third film, there was no romance. She, they, their relationship didn't feel like a relationship. Like they were both just like complaining the whole time. And I, that was very, I was let down by that. I thought it was going to have a lot, a lot better interpretation, depiction of them being a couple. And there basically wasn't anything. Well, I think the reason they did that is because they wanted to show the struggle that Peter Parker in the Sam Raimi and Tobey Maguire universe goes through with trying to find that balance of being Spider-Man, having that responsibility of being the, the hero of New York City, as well as trying to live a normal life, have a normal relationship. Because how can you have a normal relationship if you're a student and you're, you're trying to make have a job to make money, but you're also a superhero and you have to fight crime every night? So it's tough, and I, I think that's what they're trying to do, but I'm sure they could have figured out a more relatable way to show it or... Yeah, a better just, way to do it. Yeah, because all I'm saying is, aside from the opening when they're both looking up at the stars on the web, 
it, they just didn't even feel like a couple at all. There's yeah, no it, no yeah. affection. There's no love between them at all until the end of the third one. You yeah, know and even I mean? even that scene at when they have coffee before he has to save her life. That that maybe is like the only other intimate feeling moment of them that actually seems like a relationship. Yeah, and that's they're not even a couple then. That's the second one. You know what I mean? And also, I will just say that it was cool having Venom, but I just wasn't a fan of how they brought Venom into the movie where the symbiote just happened to land like 10 feet away from Spider-Man from the universe, from the, from space. You know what I mean? I thought that was a little too unbelievable. Whereas the real storyline is that Jameson's son, the astronaut brought it back. And so since Peter's like socially knows him, that's how the symbiote finds him. Whereas in this movie, they're just like, okay, let's just have, have it crash land right next to the superpowered person on Earth, <laughs> the only per superpowered person there is. Which is yeah, because they did they even did it better with Venom, the one with Tom yeah, Hardy, where yeah. it just lands in some random country yeah. in the, the industrialist. Yeah, and it gets makes it. a way to to him. Yeah, yeah. And then in the Amazing Spider-Man franchise, we have the first villain is the Lizard, aka Doctor Connors, and there's a connection between Doctor Connors, Oscorp, and Peter's family in this universe because. Um, Richard Parker, Peter's father, was a partner and colleague of Dr. Car of Dr. Carner's and was working on that lizard serum with him at Oscorp. And after Parker's death, Connors eventually be becomes friends with Peter when Peter is kind of curious and like knocks on his door after meeting him. Yeah, I think the lizard was a great choice for the new franchise because they wanted to do something different, hence Gwen Stacy for the love interest and showing us a villain that we hadn't seen already on screen before, except for in the shows. And so I think it was a good choice to go with a, a lesser-known, obscure villain in the Spider-Man world. Yeah, and, you know, it's a perfect example in these superhero movies of science gone completely wrong. And you can't completely blame Connors for what happens to him because it's just like Harry Osborn, where once the serum or the science goes wrong, this this other being or this reptilian mind now takes over his brain and he loses control and becomes this monster and this savage and powerful cross-species monster. It's like a werewolf. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's what it, it reminds can't control me of. It. Yeah, like a werewolf that he just uh, is indefinitely stuck in. And then we have a new take on Green Goblin. Uh, Dane Dehan plays Harry Osborn, childhood friend of Peter Parker. And he's also is the CEO of Oscorp Industries after inheriting the company once his father dies, once his father Norman Osborn dies. And the interesting thing about this universe is him and his father both suffer from a genetic illness, which causes this early death. And Harry doesn't want to suffer the fate that his father had from this disease. So he tries to procure the blood from Spider-Man through Peter Parker to try to cure his illness. Yeah, and I this is an interesting take on the character because in the comics, Goblin is like, he's green. He's, he doesn't wear the suit, you know what I mean? He just wears like the hat and in the purple outfit. So he, he, are, he is like genetically mutated thing and so i i like how they went with that for this film where it is uh, some kind of illness that changed their their skin pigmentation and affected them in a horrible way and so i like that aspect of the character where they have an illness that mutates them like how he's mutated in the comics yeah the serum basically speeds up this mutation and speeds up the illness so in a way that's why he gets to the point of his father's death that level of mutation so quickly. Yeah. Yeah, but he does get the superpowers too, and then he gets the metallic suit and the attached glider, um, and then he goes out to to fight and kill Spider-Man because he wouldn't give him the blood. He also teams up with Electro, and Jamie Foxx, I love, he's a great actor, and 
I, I understand what they were going for with Electro, but I just felt it was a little too comical, the character itself, before he became Electro. Yeah. Like, his his look, his outfit, like... It's over the top. It's, it's super, like, tongue-in-cheeky, and it didn't fit the tone of the franchise they were going with, because the first one was so... It was very gritty and, and edgy, and, and it just didn't feel right for... Like, it maybe could work in the Marvel one, um, but it just, it, I was like a little taken out of it by the character. Yeah, it's like too fumbling, bumbling kind of a person, a character. Like that doesn't yeah, seem like realistic Yeah, like his hair's crazy. He yeah. looks like a cartoon. So I think that it didn't, the interpretation didn't fit the tone. Uh, and then Electro, when he does become Electro, it's pretty cool. But I mean, ultimately he's not the main villain in the movie because Spider-Man stops him pretty quickly by the third act. And then Harry becomes the main villain. Um, but I just, I think that with the Andrew Garfield franchise, the weakest parts of the films are the villains because the the villains like Goblin and Doc Ock and the first two Spider-Mans, those movies are so great because the villains are fantastic. And then these ones, they the villains just weren't quite the same and I think they affected the films negatively. Yeah, and for me, aesthetically, Electro, obviously they had to do something different than the comic books because his, his costume in the comic books, how do you do that on yeah, screen? Yeah, it's ridiculous. So, so I know they were trying to do, but for me, every time I've, I've watched this movie, I'm like, that's Dr. Manhattan. He looks just like Dr. Yeah. Manhattan. So that kind of takes me out of it in a way that they kind of, I wouldn't say, I don't want to say ripped it off or copied it or just remixed it in they a way. They could have gotten like maybe a yellow issue instead of yeah, blue. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the when concept you, well, of it's interesting. When you think of electricity, it's like you, you could think of yellow as a color for working. Yeah, and like it's cool. Like his, you can see his veins and everything like that. And yeah. I think his powers are really cool because I think some of the best fight scenes in all the films are between Electro and Spider-Man in the Amazing Sp in, yeah, in the Amazing Spider-Man movies. And just the, the combat in general in these movies is, is fantastic. But And Hans Zimmer made a cool theme for Electro. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. cool. But um, yeah, overall, I think you're right. The villains are probably the weakest part of the Amazing Spider-Man franchise. Yeah, definitely. And then in uh, the Marvel version with with Tommy Holland playing Spider-Man, we have Michael Keaton, who's probably the most famous example of an actor playing both a superhero and supervillain. He plays Batman, and then he plays Vulture in the in the Marvel and Birdman and Birdman. Yeah, you're right. So he kind of plays three superheroes in a way. I think that Marvel understood that. They didn't want to go with superhero overload. I think audiences, they realized, were, they didn't want to watch a movie with six supervillains. Super you know what I mean? Um, and so they were like, let's just go one villain each movie. And it, that's a template that works. It worked for the first two Spider-Mans. And they went back to that template where you just have a good, strong villain like Vulture. Uh, and that makes the movie better. And I think Michael Keaton's Vulture is a great villain. Um, he, I think it's a much better improvement on the amazing franchise villains. Yeah, he's the former owner of Best Man Salvage, and he chooses to become the villain after he lost his entire livelihood. Again, empathized. Yeah, you so understand like, his you actions. connect with the character. Yeah. Um, he, he recruits his coworkers to help him with that exo-flying suit created at the Chitori technology that he stole. Um, I like how they threw that in. Like, they used the... The technology from the Chitauri invasion to help create his suit. Yeah, and so he, he took the identity of Vulture, and then he spent years stealing the advanced weaponry to sell in the black market to Shocker and Tinker, who are, again, they're, they're small villains, but, like, I think we're just talking Shocker's about— Shocker's in there? Yeah, yeah. And, and Tinker. So we're just talking about the main villains. And Michael Keaton's great. He's a phenomenal actor. And then we have Mysterio, played by Jake Gyllenhaal. And this is a really awesome— villain because he has no superpowers that's what's so fascinating about him and mysterio uses the power of illusions and it's really great concept to what best way to show illusions 
in the modern world than with CGI and technology yeah, with, with drones. And so yeah. when I saw the set photos for for Jake Gyllenhaal as Mysterio and he's in the in the motion capture suit, I'm like, oh, they must be doing like CGI on yeah, top. Yeah, they tricked us. But I didn't realize that he's gonna be he wears that in the movie because he's actually a fake super superhero. So it was so fun to see that because. In every movie, they just CGI over these suits that the actors wear. But then to actually see it in the movie, it was kind of very meta. You know what I mean? Yeah, and so this character, Mysterio, is obsessed with becoming the next Tony Stark, basically. Because obviously Tony Stark has passed away by this point. And he's using his power of illusion and in, 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 uh, computer imaging technology with his drones and everything to get the power of the weapons program that Tony Stark had developed because uh, Spider-Man has has access to it with his sunglasses. Yeah, and so he he tricks Peter into giving him the sunglasses and he because Peter's conflict in that movie is like at, he's dealing with the loss of Tony Stark, his father figure, and he's questioning whether he should be Spider-Man. Just like in the second Spider-Man film with Tobey Maguire, he questions whether he should be Spider-Man and even loses his powers. And in this film, the Holland Peter Parker ends up deciding, you know what, I'm a kid. I'm just going to be a kid. And then he just gives he gives the technology to Beck. He basically tricks Peter and uses his insecurities and conflict against him. But I, I love I like the take on it because I thought he was going to be a supernatural being. And so it has the same um, reveal as the Mandarin where they set it up to be this super-powered villain or super-villain and that ends up being... Just someone pretending, which I really yeah. like. I think most people don't know that Mysterio in the comic books is just a great illusionist as well. He's not yeah. like a superpowered being from a different planet. And so you're right. That did make a lot of people like, oh, he's not actually a superhero. This is pretty crazy. Yeah. And then in Into the Spider-Verse, again, Wilson Fisk, uh, known in the underworld as crime boss, Kingpin, is the main villain. And Kingpin has put the entire universe and reality in multiverse to threat. And he's also the man responsible for the death of the original Spider-Man in Miles Morales' reality. By using the Collider, he's putting all reality at jeopardy because what he's trying to do is find an alternate universe version of his wife and son who have both passed away in his universe. So it's a very, again, empathizing take on a villain where you're trying to understand why he's doing this crazy thing and trying to risk the end of huma- of reality as it exists. Uh, it's a great take. And also, I love the animation of this character in the movie because since it's animated and they went very edgy and comic booky with the style of editing, of animating, they made Kingpin this gigantic figure with the tiny head. You know, I mean, they were able to play around with physics and obviously Pixar, even though it's animated, they still kind of have... They, they have like the same prop principles and limits of reality they try to work within. And so it was great to see just like this character is like 15 feet tall and like 20 feet wide. And he's his uh, other people he interacts with are just like normal looking. So I really like the way they animated the characters in that movie. And then we have to talk about obviously Aunt May and Uncle, Uncle Ben. And Aunt May is played by Rosemary Harris in the original Spider-Man franchise. Um, and Uncle Ben plays a prominent role in Peter's life in these films, and he's again the father figure to him and offers words of wisdom. And it's really, really sad when Uncle Ben gets shot and killed in this franchise because you've grown to care about this character and you understand this this great bond that he and Peter have with each other. It's the it's super tragic, especially in the first one when he, when Ben dies and and Peter's holding him as he holding his hands as he passes away it really makes you root for for peter to become a hero and then 
And it's the motivating factor for him. Because he realizes that the person, when he let the person escape, the mugger escape, that's the person that killed Uncle Ben, yeah, which and, he later finds out. And they completely change this with the Holland Spider-Mans where he tells Tony that he became Spider-Man because he has the powers. It was, he wasn't motivated to get criminals because of the death of a family member. But he says he's motivated because he, he says that if I have these powers and bad things happen and I'm not there to stop it, then it's my fault that they happen. I think that they're insinuating that there was an Uncle Ben in the Holland universe. I think that's what they're yeah, doing with but that I line. I don't think that, that, I just don't think he's motivated by Ben's death. It, I, we yeah, don't know, but yeah. I think I think they're insinuating that there was an Uncle Ben and maybe there was a reason that he it could, died. It could be, yeah. I think that's what they're trying to do with that line. And yeah. then Martin Sheen plays Uncle Ben in the Amazing Spider-Man universe. Um, and kind of similar story with the first one where, but in this one, Andrew, I mean, Peter Parker's like always late for everything. And they, they kind of bicker a lot more than the, the original Uncle Ben version in the Tobey Maguire universe. But again, same kind of situation where Peter Parker is somewhat responsible for the death of Uncle Ben and used that as motivation. Yeah. And it's kind of funny if you look at um, each franchise, they made Aunt May younger and younger because they went from <laughs> Rosemary Harris to Sally Field and then to Marissa Tomei. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> And in Uncle Uncle Ben, you could say Uncle Aaron takes on that responsibility to kind of mentor and give wisdom to Miles when he's feeling down and when he's arguing with his father, who they're constantly he's constantly butting heads with. So Uncle Ben is kind of Uncle Aaron in those in that franchise. And in terms of Aunt May, I would say that the Andrew Garfield Peter Parker and Aunt May relationship is probably the strongest. They're very close. They have a lot of very emotional and personal scenes together it's, and, they feel like a mother son yeah they seem like that aspect now i would say that that's the strongest aunt may peter parker relationship of all the all the franchises in the first one it feels like a grandmother and a grandson yeah yeah they're very they're very elderly in those films yeah and, but then marissa tomei even though she seems more like the age of being his mom she feels like an aunt yeah you know what i mean exactly like they have that they they have like that we're kind of just roommates vibe you know what i mean and obviously, you know, Tobey Maguire's and Sam Raimi's Spider-Man was the one we watched when we grew up. So if I had to pick a favorite, that one's my favorite because that's that's what was fresh for us when we were kids. And that was what we were exposed to for years. And I've seen those movies so many times and that's not a knock on any other ones. But I love the character that Tobey plays in these franchises and I love the Spider-Man version. But again, they all have strengths and weaknesses. Again, we've talked about Andrew Garfield's version is very funny. Peter Parker, very hip and edgy, maybe maybe too cool for school. And then <laughs> Tom Holland has the benefit, of course, the technology that he gets from uh, Tony Stark. And, but the youthful innocence, yeah. too. And then I, the aspect I love about the Miles Morales Spider-Man universe is there's already a Spider-Man in this world. So he's not the only hero, and he kind of has this this shadow to live up to because he's going to become the next Spider-Man. It's really interesting. And Miles is more relatable to the new generation of youth. They can relate to him more than they can with the Peter Park to the Peter Parker of the original two. And then real quick, music too. Uh, Danny Elfman's score in the first Spider-Man franchise is exceptional. I think it's some of the best, uh, most iconic themes we've heard in any superhero movies in general. It's just yeah, the I, strings I, are great. They're, they're amazing. And then. Yeah. Obviously, Hans did the Amazing Spider-Man, which is really cool. The second one. The second one. Oh, yeah, the Electro theme is really cool in yeah. that. And then I think Daniel Pemberton, his score in the um, Into the Spider-Verse That's great. movie yeah. is so underrated. Yeah. He's one of my favorite composers. He's done like... Um, John Man Guy from, Ritchie movies. Yeah, The Man from Uncle, and he's done Ocean's 8. So King Arthur. King Arthur. He's, he's got a bunch of great uh, films under his repertoire. Yeah. And then Michael Giacchino does the, the new, new Spider-Man ones. Yeah.
How about some uh, fun Spider-Man facts? Let's get into it. All right, let, let's start with the, uh, the Tobey Maguire ones. James Franco and Tobey Maguire actually hated each other for all three films. And um, it all started on the first film. James Franco joked about Tobey Maguire's face looking like a frog. And then after that, the two of them never got along again and clashed. And, and they even still admit to having a rivalry with one another. So Tobey Maguire is actually a world-class poker player. And he was involved in the illegal Hollywood underground poker game, uh, which is featured in the film Molly's Game, which was an elitist high buy-in, high-stakes underground illegal ring. At the Viper Room, right? Um, they went to the Viper Room, and then they ended up going into hotels. And Tobey Maguire is actually portrayed by Michael Sarah in this film. They don't name him, but they call him Player X. And Tobey Maguire is apparently like a ruthless poker player who enjoys humiliating people and trying to, to take as much money away from people as possible. And at one point, it was it was proven that he made over a million dollars each month from playing poker in this game. So you can imagine that's probably why he doesn't get a ton of movie roles anymore. He's probably like that in his in his professional life in, in Hollywood as well. Yeah, and apparently he told Molly, the, the woman who ran the game, he once tried to get her to bark like a seal um, by paying her with a $1,000 poker chip, and he was like harassing her to do it. So he seems like a, a questionable guy. Maybe he's turned things around, but he seems like a... Uh, you know, not quite the Peter Parker we know. Tom Holland began acting as Spider-Man in Captain America Civil War only four days after his casting was confirmed. So he was confirmed as Spider-Man, and then literally four days later, he was in Civil War. Isn't that crazy? And he also, Tom Holland's screen tests involved um, shooting scenes with Robert Downey Jr. and also Chris Evans. And in his scene with Downey, he, he met Downey's stunt double thinking it was Robert Downey Jr. And even told the stunt double, hey, you look a lot different than you do in movies. They, they <laughs> do something different with like your hair or something. And then Robert Downey Jr. showed up and he was super embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Feige is obviously the president of Marvel Studios. And he is the, the, the main reason why these movies have been consistently good. And ironically, he started out as a lowly intern to producer Richard Donner and his wife, and he's the director who made the first Superman movie. But Kevin Feige's job was walking dogs, getting lunches, and washing cars. And he showed so much potential as a committed assistant that he was eventually promoted to producer. And then he was then hired by Marvel and very quickly went from producing Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk to becoming the president of Marvel Studios. That's insane. Hard work pays off. Stan Lee once filmed four Marvel cameos in one single day. According to James Gunn, who filmed them all, Stanley's cameos in Stanley filmed cameos for films in Doctor Strange, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Thor Ragnarok, and Spider-Man Homecoming. Yeah, I actually saw Stanley uh year like maybe four years ago before he passed away at an airport and he was very elderly, very sickly and needed multiple assistance. So they, they were, they're doing the best they could. And so you can imagine how difficult they it had is to, to it. get him to get to, yeah. to come to set and actually be able to act because he, he was, you know, on the edge of his life for a couple of years, but I saw him and he had like three assistants uh, catering to him. Yeah. They, that's why they did as many cameos as possible in one day, just to make it easier on him. Mm hmm and that wraps our Spider-Man Spider-Verse episode. Let us know if you're watching on YouTube in the comments which one's your favorite. We really hope you enjoyed 
this episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Take care, everyone. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost podcast. Hit that subscribe button and notification bell. Listen to the audio formats of Raiders of the Lost podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast.